0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Easter is approaching. And one of the things that really bothers me is this custom or tradition or practice of giving bunnies as Easter gifts. Of course, no animal should be given as a gift, but let's focus on rabbits. And so I thought it would be appropriate to play for you a really good interview I conducted last year on many aspects of taking care of rabbits. Well, February is Adopt a Rescued Rabbit Month, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Anne Martin, who's Executive Director of House Rabbit Society. Hi, Anne. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lori. Anne, what is Adopt a Rescued Rabbit Month all about?
1: Yeah, our goal is to introduce everyone to the fact that there are rescued rabbits across the country and, in fact, internationally that, that are all looking for great homes. You may be thinking in February, you may be thinking of Valentine's Day and romance, um, but if you want to fall in love, you could do that as close as your local shelter or rabbit rescue. Um, fall in love with a, a local rabbit. Um, rabbits also love to have a companion. So February is a great time to adopt a rescued rabbit for your rabbit. Um, and at rescues or shelters, there are people, volunteers, and staff that can help you find a really good match for your bunny as well. So we're really just trying to raise awareness about all the great rabbits that are out there looking for home.
0: And I really want to get into the serious issues related to rabbits in our society, like their use in research and cosmetic testing. But first, and let's briefly talk about them as pets. What are the main qualities that make rabbits Rabbits, good companion animals, and what types of households or families tend to do best with pet rabbits?
1: Rabbits are fabulous um, pets. They, they're great companions um, to live indoors with people. Rabbits are really susceptible to predators and heat and cold if they're living outside. Um, so, rabbits live a much happier, healthier life if they live inside as a part of the family. Just like with our cats and dogs, they live healthier, happier lives as they're when they're part of the family and uh, can run around the living room and lick our fingers and um, you know beg for treats and all those kinds of things. Rabbits do all those things as well. Living with a rabbit is really similar to living with a cat. They use a litter box. They don't need to go out for walks, and they don't bark. Um, so they're great companions for people who live in apartments or urban environments. Um, and you can always take them outside to play as long as there's someone outside to supervise them. Um, but they are very vulnerable outside. And so House Rabbit Society really believes that they need to be inside any any family or individual it could be a great rabbit person. You just need to do your homework first before bringing a rabbit home. And we have lots of great information at rabbit. on what you need to do to take good care of a rabbit, um, what to feed them, what kind of housing they need. We just recommend a puppy exercise pen in your home for when you're asleep or when you're away from the house, and then. When you're home, you can just let them run around like a cat.
0: And let's move on to rabbit overpopulation and the advice to adopt and not to purchase. Are rabbits purposefully bred for the pet market?
1: The overpopulation problem is a really big problem with rabbits. Rabbits are purposefully bred for the pet market, um, but rabbits also reproduce very quickly. They have earned their reputation in this. They can have babies every 30 days. So a lot of people may go to a pet store, they may get rabbits from a friend, and they're told they have two girls and the next thing they know there's a litter of babies and it may seem kind of exciting um, and then 30 days later there's another litter of babies so mm. in about two months' time, they can go from having two rabbits to having 20 rabbits or more, and all of a sudden that's really overwhelming, and that just keeps happening. So the overpopulation issue with rabbits is, is a really big one, um, both where people are intentionally breeding rabbits for sale, um, but also people unintentionally breeding rabbits and having that get out of control really quickly. Um, so sadly, we see rabbits uh, as they, they are the third most surrendered pet After cats and dogs to our nation's animal shelters. We see rabbits in our shelters. Um, Many of the rabbits are stray. Either they've escaped from someone's backyard um, or somebody may have let them go thinking that they could survive. Um, But but rabbits are domesticated and they they can't survive in the wild. Um, They're dependent on people in order to feed them and take care of them. And they're very vulnerable, again, to predators and heat and cold. So, you know, a pet rabbit out in the forest isn't going to last very long, sadly. Um, so, so we do see a fair number of stray rabbits that come into our animal shelters, um, and we also see rabbits where people haven't done their homework first and haven't really done, you know, thought about what it takes to take care of a rabbit. And um, they don't get them spayed and neutered, which is very important with rabbits. And rabbits will have hormonal behaviors similar to cats and dogs. If you don't get them spayed and neutered, they have these unwanted hormonal behaviors. And with rabbits, it could be spring urine or nipping um, or not using the litter box. And um, once you fix them, all of those issues go away. Um, But for people who are enticed at a pet store to buy a very young baby rabbit, they don't necessarily know the importance of spay and neuter. Um, Most of the pet stores aren't going to tell them that. Spay and neuter piece is also very important for the females. They have an 80% chance of uterine cancer if they're not spayed. And so that, that chance of cancer is just eliminated if they get spayed most people just kind of don't know these things and if they haven't done their homework and the rabbit is displaying these unwanted behaviors they may end up at an animal shelter. Um, The other common reason that we see for rabbits ending up at an animal shelter is that um, they were seen as the child's pet. Rabbits live eight to twelve years um, which is almost as long as a big dog and A lot of times, we're not really thinking of that when we're thinking of our kids, and and if a rabbit is going to be seen as a child's responsibility. Children's interests change a lot in an 8 to 12 year period of time. And we see this even with our adopters. You know, they may not be thinking of their child going to college when they're only 12 years old. So we're, we're always trying to do education to remind people the lifespan of rabbits and that everybody in the family, um, and especially the parents, need to take responsibility for the rabbits. And if the parents want the rabbit, uh, everything's going to be great. They're going to have a great family experience. Um, but in cases where um, people haven't had that information up front and they were expecting a child to take care of the rabbit, um, that's often not sustainable over an 8 to 12 year period, um, and the rabbit m- might find themselves unwanted or in, at an animal shelter.
0: Ann, please talk about the use of the fur of rabbits as clothing. Is this done in the U.S., and how can consumers avoid purchasing products made of rabbit?
1: Yeah, sadly, fur issue is still here and present in the United States. I'd like to say that it's not, um, but there are still people purchasing fur both from rabbits and from other animals for clothing. You can also find rabbit fur in household items. Occasionally we'll see them as like key rings or cat toys um can be made out of rabbit fur. There there is a labeling requirement in the United States if Item garments are made with fur. So you can check the labeling. There have been a few exposes in the last few years about companies claiming that they're using faux fur when it's actually real fur. Um, so you can actually look down at the very base of the garment, and if it looks like a fabric weave at the base of the fur, then you know that it's a synthetic. Um, but if it looks like leather or skin at the base of that fur, odds are that's actually real fur on that garment, um, and and we would counsel people not to buy it because the cruelties that are inherent to the fur farming are just absolutely atrocious um, and just absolutely harrowing breaking and and there's some video footage online for people that want to go and investigate that further and
0: update us on the use and abuse of rabbits and testing of cosmetics and other household products i mean my general understanding is that the situation is better in the eu but
1: we're making some headway in the u.s is that correct it's true. We're making some headway. And I believe HSUS is working on um, some proposed legislation in this area right now. Um, but unfortunately, there's still a lot of testing, both of cosmetics and other household products. And the, the thing we can do as consumers is check our labels really carefully. If you see a leaping bunny um, or you see that it's written on the container, no animal testing, that's the best thing that you can do to check that you're not contributing to this issue. Um, a lot of everyday household products, cleaners, toothpaste, a lot of these companies don't have that labeling on there. Um, and, and it would be really easy to think, oh, I'm sure they just forgot to put it on. But if you do a little bit of homework, um, nine times out of 10, those those companies are still participating in animal testing. The sad thing is, is that most of the time, It's not actually legally required of them, um, but this is actually a strategy that they're trying to minimize their liability because they can claim, well, we've done additional testing, therefore we believe the products are more safe. Um, Whether or not that's actually even true, uh, many of these, the ingredient products have previously already been tested and many animals have been subjected to this testing years and years and years ago. Um, And so there's not a need for further testing on these same types of products. Um, But unfortunately, in our um, kind of liability-driven economy, um, we see it happening all the time.
0: And are people still purchasing and eating rabbit meat in the United States?
1: yeah this is a really sad state of affairs. Unfortunately, people are still eating rabbit in the United States um, and the rabbits that people are eating are exactly the same rabbits that we share our homes with as companion animals or as pets um, there there's no genetic difference it's not wild rabbits versus pet rabbits it's exactly the same rabbits um, so for those of us that share our lives with rabbits and you know have them hopping around our living rooms and sleeping at the foot of our beds um, it, this is is a really personal issue and a really heartbreaking one. Um, the rabbits that are raised for meat um, are done in factory; they're raised in factory farming conditions in battery cages, and they're sourced to grocery stores across the country. So, we were successful a couple of years ago in asking Whole Foods to stop selling rabbit meat, but there are others um, that are still selling rabbit meat in their meat case, um, and we we would love to see this end. Uh, and if you are shopping at a grocery store and you see rabbit in the meat case, if you could talk to them and just let them know that you, you would like to see it stop and, um, you could even ask if there's been a lot of demand for that product. Um, what we heard from Whole Foods was that there wasn't as much demand as they had expected. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from their, their consumer base. And so I think if you're at a store where they're telling you they're not selling a lot of it, um, if you and your friends want to really petition in the store, there's a possibility that they could stop carrying it. A lot of people that live with companion rabbits this issue is so personal to them. It makes them reconsider their own diet and what they eat Um, and I know a lot of people that have gone vegetarian or vegan simply because they opened their home to a rabbit and that started them thinking because they love this little rabbit so completely just like we love our cats and our dogs. How could anyone possibly want to eat them Um, and just so carelessly take their life for a meal? So for a lot of people, um, just having a pet rabbit at home has opened their eyes to both the issues of rabbits being raised for meat um, but also animal testing and these other issues that, that that are are serious animal rights issues but but it becomes much more personal when it's the animals that we share our homes with
0: that's so true don't go away. more with ann martin right after the break with Executive Director of House Rabbit Society, Anne Martin. And soon it will be Easter, and I'm sure that will present with many challenges for rabbit advocates. Please explain.
1: So at Easter time, um... Rabbits are everywhere in our culture. Uh, it's a sign of spring and rebirth and, uh, you know, animals, birds and the bees and animals having babies and all of this. Rabbits are this powerful symbol of fertility and um, reawakening and spring. Um, at the same time, some people actually take that very literally and will try to go out and buy baby rabbits for their kids as presents um, or put them in their Easter baskets. And so every Easter, we always want to remind um, the public that rabbits are fabulous companions, but you really want to do your homework first before you bring a rabbit home. Again, they're an 8- to 12-year commitment, and so you don't want to just go out and, you know, pop a baby rabbit in your Easter basket on a whim um, because they have really specific care needs. Um, and, and it can be really a sad tragedy um, for your children and for your family um, if your baby rabbit passes away because they've been fed the the wrong thing or um, you know they had poor care before coming to you. Um- and so really the best thing you can do is do your homework. And then when you're ready to adopt, um, go to a rescuer or, or a shelter where you're going to be saving a life when you take a rabbit home. you know, Unfortunately, because there are so many rabbits that end up unwanted, um, there are literally rescues across the country and internationally. We have 30 chapters um, in the United States and a couple abroad um, that are just House Rabbit Society chapters. But if you go on PetFinder.com, you can look and see thousands of rabbits um, in your own community and in communities near you, rescues and shelters, um, all different kinds of rabbits, big rabbits, little rabbits, fluffy rabbits. Um, The rabbits that often have the hardest time finding homes are white bunnies with pink eyes, um, sadly because um, people are scared of their pink eyes, and um, I personally think the pink eyes are beautiful, and um, I've known so many of these wonderful rabbits um, that are white with pink eyes that have absolutely the best personalities so I really encourage people to take a second look at those rabbits Um, and senior rabbits or rabbits that have some special need often have a harder time finding a home so I would also encourage people to take a second look at those rabbits Um, going back to the issue of, of animal testing I've personally had a rabbit that I lived with, um, Chester, who who recently passed away, but um, who was rescued from a research lab. Um, and he was a big white rabbit with pink eyes and um, was a fabulous bunny. So I would definitely encourage people to be open-minded in in terms of falling in love with a rabbit and what they look like.
0: Well, Anne, I wanted to give you a chance to give us an overview of the main welfare issues concerning rabbits. And I know we've only just scratched the surface. There's a lot more information on the House Rabbit Society's website. That's rabbit.org. More information than probably any other single source in the world. So I encourage listeners to go to rabbit.org to learn more about rabbits and or if you or someone you know is considering rescuing a rabbit. Ann Martin from House Rabbit Society. Thank you so much for all your good work, Ann. Thank you, Laurie.
2: Hey, Laurie. Hey, Peter. You know, I've had a couple of instances in the backyard in the evening or in the morning with one of the dogs, Skye. And Skye, I've learned, has a habit of drinking out of my cup. And I've learned that Skye likes the taste of wine, so I need to not take my... You know, in the evening, I'd like to have a, a little glass of wine outside, watch the sunset, it's very relaxing. But I can't put my cup down, because before I know it, she's slurping out of it. So I've had to be really guarding that, which is somewhat annoying. And then also in the morning, same thing. I've got my coffee out out there and she will drink the whole thing of coffee if I let her and you know the question that comes up now what uh, there's dogs life, what should I do with this
0: drink right Lori yeah what do you do with it I'm still trying to figure that out But what do people do? (laughs) Right. So then we thought it would be interesting to pose this question on Facebook. So we wrote the following. Would you continue to drink your beverage, whatever it might be, beer, coffee, water, orange juice, etc., after your dog drinks or licks from it? For example, your beverage is on the table and your dog takes a couple licks out of it. Do you continue drinking from it or do you throw it out and prepare your drink over again? And a similar question for your plate or bowl of food. If your dog eats some of the food, do you continue to eat it? Do you throw it away and start over? Or do you just throw out the portion that you think he touched with his mouth or tongue? Finally, do you share a spoon or fork with your dog? Please tell us your preferences and share your story. Mm, good questions. Okay. Yeah. So ready for some of the...
2: It's good that you asked this because I'm always wondering, am I like in the mainstream or am I like really... Doing my own thing, and like, am I super germophobic or am I just like an average pet, you know, guardian? So I'm glad you put that out, out there. What what did people
0: say? I think it was a split response. Actually, here are some of what people said. Yep, my dogs are my kids, but if I get a piece of hair, it's all theirs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Someone else says, yep. I use my spoon to give them a taste of something and then eat from the same spoon. By the way, they don't mind if I use the spoon either. They don't mind. Okay, so that's
2: a very specific thing. You're you're sharing a utensil. and So that's very brave, I
0: think. This person writes, yes, my animals eat and drink from my plate and glass at times, and it doesn't bother me. Someone else, not a problem for me. Someone else, sure, why not? We kiss on the lips every day. What's the difference? Here's a funny one. Considering that he was licking from his, and I'll just change the word to testicles, 30 seconds ago, I would say no. And someone replied to that comment by saying he shouldn't have any, quote, testicles, but I know what you're saying.
2: Mm. Okay, I want to tell you what I do with the food on the plate scenario, because this I've changed over the years. I used to just start all over if the dog was anywhere near my plate, but now I sort of... uh, wall it off and I'll just sort of eat around where I'm guessing they might have touched.
0: But what about the argument that our dogs kiss you in the mouth and you let them? I know it's not
2: logical I'm just trying to enjoy my dinner without thinking about saliva and stuff like that i don't know
0: (laughs) this person writes gross of course not to either animals mouths are not clean contrary to that fairy tale another person writes i love my dogs they can sleep in my bed but kissing a dog etc is just nuts they are an animal and do lick places you wouldn't be licking Mm. no i wouldn't share a meal or drink with our dogs i love them but i am a bit of a germaphobe oddly i don't have a problem with them jumping up on the couch or on the bed though Lori, I don't have any pets, so I don't have a dog in this fight. If I did, I would not eat something a dog slobbered on. I love dogs, but I realize that dogs lick themselves in some areas that aren't what I would consider sanitary. Okay, so the okay. same theme here. Yeah. I
2: don't like that phrase, dog in the fight. Yeah. Yeah, what I don't either. All right.
0: This person writes, weird. If the cat drinks from my cup, I finish it. But if the dog drinks, I pour it out and fix a new one. So so perhaps there's a certain amount of saliva like you mentioned above which they would not tolerate right because a dog slob right everyone yeah. gets the dog slobbers more than a cat slobbers mm. right so peter do you think these people who don't mind allowing their dogs and or cats to drink from their beverage can you assume these people would not mind taking a couple sips out of their dog's water bowl oh boy that can get pretty
2: nasty if you don't refresh the water often enough, you know, Uh, I got to be pretty thirsty to get to go there. See,
0: that's the saliva factor. Yeah. This is Dr. Lori Kirschner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org.
2: Well, it's been more than 10 years since we learned about bad news, kennels, dog fighting operation, and of course, Michael Vick's involvement. Really a shocking revelation for everyone. So uh, would you think that nationwide dog fighting or animal fighting overall is less prevalent than it was a decade ago? Um, I'll have to admit, I really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I get a lot of news feeds and I know animal fighting and dog fighting is still a big problem. But there's new survey data out that speaks to this, as well as people's understanding about dog fighting prevalence. And to talk about this, I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Benovi. He is Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Welcome, Andrew.
3: Hey, Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Okay, Andrew. So is dog fighting becoming less prevalent?
3: I'd have to say, uh, you know, that's not Unfortunately, not the case. And one thing that we have seen from the ASPCA side of it, and you mentioned the Michael Vick case, but since 2010 at least, we have assisted in over 200 dog fighting cases all around the country in 24 states. And this is something that's impacted in those cases, almost 5,000 victims of of dog fighting. And these are animals that we have rescued. We have uh, animals that we have assisted law enforcement and veterinary professionals in, in consultations and investigations. And um, even though animal fighting and dog fighting is in particular is a felony in all 50 states, it's something that we continue to see as a um, unfortunately popular underground activity and uh, something that we at the ASPCA estimate that there could be tens of thousands of dog fighters in the United States right now.
2: Well, I admire uh, the work of the ASPCA as do, I'm sure, all of our listeners. You really are at the front line of this and uh And so it is surprising, I would say, that uh, it's still so common. Let's uh, talk about some new survey data that's available that speaks to uh, dog fighting and people's perceptions about it, if you would.
3: Sure, so one of the things that we know that, you know, the ASPCA, we're working this every day. You know, we have our investigations teams that go out and assist law enforcement and assist in in rescuing animals uh, from animal fighting uh, cases something that our, our veterinarians are, are working with uh, veterinarians all across the country of knowing for the, the signs of animal fighting, what to look for if an animal comes in or if a dog comes into a veterinary practice, something we work with law enforcement as well for, so they can recognize uh, the, the particular types of, of things that we see all the time in, in working all these cases. But as for the general public, uh, what we have found that, that many people don't know how common dog fighting really is and they're unable to recognize these signs, and and also, uh, unfortunately, are, are not sure exactly what to do and how to how to properly report this. And a, a new national poll that the ASPCA uh, just released shows that 57% of people believe that dog fighting doesn't even happen in their community. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. It's something that we have seen, uh, whether it's. You know, in urban settings or in rural, rural settings, if it's up north, down south, out west, wherever it is, all across the nation, we have seen these cases. Uh, and unfortunately, only uh, fewer than one third of people, 31 percent, are very confident that they would recognize the signs of, of dogfighting. And um, only half of people, 53 uh, percent, would know what to do. And 53 percent have said that they have reported suspected activities to local authorities. Uh, and 25% of people did did nothing. So we, we see this gap between what the ASPCA and other animal welfare professionals and animal control officers and police officers all across the country who, who see this every day, um, but the general public, they just may not know. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that we have been working on, in particular, uh, National Dog Fighting Awareness Day, which we uh, recognize on April 8th, to really raise awareness about the prevalence of dogfighting in this country and, and encourage folks to take action against this this brutal form of, of animal cruelty
2: can you uh, briefly review some of the signs people ought to be aware of
3: one of the things that our veterinarians in particular will work with uh, veterinarians across the country to show uh, to teach them you know what exactly this particular bite mark or this particular pattern might be uh, might be in Indicative of animal fighting cases. Uh, animal fighting cases. So that's something that I our, know our, our, our work uh, with our veterinary staff is is um, probably could speak a little bit better on. Um, but just in, in cases of of of, of animal fighting, um, you know, it's not something that you you might not see out out in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's something that you know behind a fence or something where you see a a bunch of dogs tied together, all on chains, uh, particularly. Uh, a particular length apart so they're not uh, quite touching each other yeah. things like that um it's something that if you suspect something is going on contact your local police department contact your local law enforcement or animal control officers and let them know and let professionals uh go in and make that determination for themselves
2: is there a profile of people who are involved in dog fighting who does this these days
3: Unfortunately, there's not. It's something that we've seen uh, in all kinds of demographics. Whether it's you know wealthy people, whether it's not wealthy people, whether it's or, like I said, urban or rural, like in the country or out in the city. You know, we've we've assisted animal fighting cases and in, and in, 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 out in the country, and we've assisted them right in our backyard in New York City. Uh, it's something that it's hard to pin on on one particular. Uh, uh, profile. It's uh, unfortunately uh, something that uh, occurs all across the country.
2: Okay. So there is a federal legislation being drafted or proposed, the Heart Act. What is that?
3: Sure. So the Heart Act is the help extract animals from red tape. And what this bill gets at is two particular issues that we have seen firsthand when we are assisting uh, in animal fighting raids. The ASPCA along with other, uh, other, uh, other animal welfare organizations, regularly assist law enforcement when it comes to animal fighting cases. When it comes to the federal system, you know, the, the FBI doesn't have an animal shelter. <laughs> you know, they, they um, rely on organizations like ours to assist in these cases. So if they're going in and they're, they're going into an animal fighting raid, uh, we come in and we help uh, take care of the animals. We help gather uh, evidence, and then we hold the animals as they go through the next step. And when it came, and one of the things like we mentioned before is talking about the lack of, of awareness to these cases, one of the things that we want to get out is that um, when we rescue animals from the yard or when law enforcement rescues animals from, from a yard from an animal fighting case, there's still other steps that, that needs to go happen. It needs to, uh, and for some cases, especially on the federal level, it is a long road ahead of them. For some animals, yeah. and what the Heart Act does in particular is, it gets to a problem that we have seen, where once we rescue these animals, uh, it just takes too long for them to be rehomed and rehabilitated, and there, there's another problem along that goes along with it. The longer that the animals take, uh, it takes to get these animals rehomed, um, the more expensive it can be. So these two problems of one, this process is taking too long, the disposition for the animals. Uh, through essentially what what is the federal asset forfeiture system is taking too long, and it is also uh, becoming too expensive the longer it takes, and that expense part is is problematic uh, because if this is uh, difficult for shelters and rescues to assist in animal fighting raids, that's something that we, we don't want to to have. So in order to address these two problems, what the Hard Act does. Is it uh, makes this process, this disposition process, shorter, and ensures that those responsible are reimbursing the governments for the for the cost of the care?
2: And please clarify something. The, so the FBI is involved in some of these cases. So it becomes a federal case when they're involved. I mean, you've got each of the fifty states. It's a felony for, to be do- involved in dogfighting, but yet there's another layer of federal law enforcement.
3: Sure. So that's that's a that's actually a really good really good question. Um, Essentially, when animal fighting crosses state lines, that is when uh, the federal law enforcement gets involved. Um, State, you know, animal fighting can occur in the state. And if unless it's crossing state lines or if other federal cases are involved, for example, drug trafficking, uh, trafficking, illegal weapons. And that's one thing that we know for sure is that when animal fighting occurs, chances are other uh, crimes are occurring as well. So if those other crimes trigger a federal investigation, that's, that's usually when the FBI or other federal law enforcement is, is oh, called. Okay, got so it. So we have seen on the state level, and that's, uh, getting back to this, this, those issues, on the state level, states have figured out that when you're seizing animals in these types of crimes, you need to have this process be quicker than when you're seizing a boat or seizing a, a car. Um, you can't just have animals waiting around while this, this asset forfeiture process goes forward. But on the federal level, there's, there's no difference. So the HEART Act makes that change in saying, when you're seizing animals, we need, to make this, we need to make this quicker, and we also need to ensure that the cost of care for the animals is being met.
2: Okay, and listeners who want to support this can go to the website and send a letter to Jeff Sessions or somebody else?
3: Uh, you, you know, even better. You can go to uh, the ASPCA site. You can go to ASPCA slash advocacy, and there you can contact your members of Congress. Uh, we just had the bill, the companion measure introduced in the Senate uh, this week by Senators Harris and Collins, which joins the, the House legislation as well, um, and ask their members of Congress to co-sponsor this the HARD Act.
2: That's great. Andrew, in the last minute or so, uh, sure. if you could just tell us about what the Break the Chain campaign is, and uh, tell us about my favorite actor, Sir Patrick Stewart's involvement in that.
3: Sure. sure. So, Sir Patrick Stewart actually stopped by uh, one of our uh, one of our uh, facilities and showed off exactly what uh, what dogs should be doing, and dogs shouldn't be on a chain. They shouldn't be in animal fighting uh, or in dog fighting pits, um, and making sure that uh, that that chain of cruelty is broken. and And you can go follow. Uh, all of the information that we are, we are doing and part of our campaign, our campaign for National Dog Finding Awareness Day at ASPCA.org breakthechain the Chain. And you can, can see uh, Sir Patrick Stewart up there and, and see all the other work that's being done by advocates all across the nation. And we re- really appreciate his support in particular.
2: That's Andrew Benovi, Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Great information. Thank you so much for visiting us on Animals Today.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: More with animals today after the break. For the past quarter
3: century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org.
0: Your animals to say fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and to pick the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. April 8th to the 14th is National Dog Bite Prevention Week. And according to the Insurance Information Institute and State Farm, the largest writer of homeowners insurance in the United States, dog bites and other dog-related injuries accounted for more than one-third of all homeowners liability claim dollars paid out in 2017, costing almost $700 million. An analysis of homeowners insurance data by the Insurance Information Institute found that the number of dog bike claims nationwide increased to 18,522 in 2017. This is a 2.2% increase compared to 2016. The average cost paid out for dog bike claims was 37,051 in 2017 which was up by 11.5% compared to 2016. Kristen Palmer, Chief Communications Officer with the Insurance Information Institute, stated the increase in the 2017 average cost per claim could be attributed to an increase in severity of injuries. She states that but the average cost per claim nationally has risen more than 90% from 2003 to 2017 due to increased medical cost as well as the size of settlements, judgments, and jury awards Given to plaintiffs. California continued to have the largest number of claims in the United States at 2,228 claims. That's in 2017. California also had the highest value of claims in 2017 at $90.4 million. The state with the second highest number of claims In 2017 was Florida. The state with the highest average cost per claim was Florida at $44,700 per claim in 2017. Again, National Dog Bite Prevention Week, April 8th to the 14th, focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. Now, this is from the American Veterinary Medical Association website, with an estimated population of 70 million dogs living in U.S. households, millions of people, most of them children, are bitten by dogs every year. And you need to know that the majority of these bites, if not all, are preventable. The U.S. Postal Service reports that 6,244 postal employees were attacked by dogs in 2017. This is down a little bit compared to 2016. Children, elderly, and postal carriers are the most frequent victims of dog bites. And as we just reported from the Insurance Information Institute, in 2017, insurers across the country paid nearly $700 million in claims related to dog bites. Nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 to repair injuries caused by dog bites. That's according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Okay, so here's some great information from the AVMA, or American Veterinary Medical Association website on dog bite prevention. Dog bites pose a serious health risk to our communities and society. More than 4.5 million people are bitten by dogs each year in the U.S., and more than 800,000 receive medical attention for dog bites, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. At least half of those bitten are children. A few more little facts. Almost one in five people bitten by dogs require medical attention. Children are by far the most common victims of dog bites and are far more likely to be severely injured. Most dog bites affecting young children occur during everyday activities and while interacting with familiar dogs. Senior citizens are the second most common dog bite victims. Remember, any dog can bite, right? Big or small, male or female, young or old, even the cutest, sweetest, fuzziest pets can bite if provoked. And a big point here, it's not the dog's breed that determines whether a dog will bite, but rather the dog's individual history and behavior. Most dog bites are preventable and there are many things you can do at home and within your community to help prevent them. Dogs bite for a variety of reasons, but most commonly as a reaction to something. If the dog finds itself in a stressful situation, it may bite to defend itself or its territory. Dogs can bite because they're scared or have been startled. They can bite because they feel threatened. They can bite to protect something that is valuable to them, like their puppies, their food, or their toys. Dogs might bite because they aren't feeling well. They could be sick or sore due to injury or illness and might want to be left alone. Dogs also might nip and bite during play. Even though nipping during play might be fun for the dog, it can be dangerous for people. It's a good idea to avoid wrestling or playing tug of war with your dog. These types of activities can make your dog overly excited, which may lead to a nip or a bite. So what can you do to prevent dog bites? Well, socializing your dog helps him or her feel at ease in different situations. Responsible pet ownership, we all know about that. Education, educating your kids about how or whether to approach a dog. Also, pay attention to a dog's body language. That can be very helpful. And most importantly, avoid risky situations. Avoid petting a dog under these scenarios. If the dog is not with its owner... If the dog is with its owner, but the owner does not give you permission to pet the dog. If the dog is on the other side of a fence, don't reach through the fence or over a fence to pet a dog. If a dog is sleeping or eating. If a dog is sick or injured. If a dog is resting with her puppies or seems very protective of her puppies and anxious about your presence. If a dog is playing with a toy. If a dog is growling or barking if a dog appears to be hiding or seeking time alone. So you want to avoid petting a dog under these risky situations. Okay, again, National Dog Bite Prevention Week. Educate yourself and others about how to prevent dog bites. AVMA website has some great information here. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.
4: Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is, declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So, those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org.